The scripture reading today is found in the book of Judges. But before I read our scripture reading, Pastor Barton has asked me to read this short paragraph. Read it first. So here we go. The passage of scripture we're about to read tells a story that is violent, disturbing, and graphic in nature. Parents should use discretion in allowing their kids to hear this story. For those listening, it is important to note that this story is not in the Bible because God approves of it. It is in the Bible because it demonstrates the depths of depravity a society may sink to when it forsakes God. As we read it, take note of the very first verse and the very last verse as they define why the horrific event took place in Israel and why this passage has everything to do with the message of Christmas. So if you want, please turn to the book of Judges, and I'll be reading uh, a condensed version of chapter 19. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening, and he brought him into his house. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughters and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the, day that the, from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the word of the living God. What did you think of that story that we just had read for us? Pretty horrific, isn't it? Why would we read such a thing, such a story, 
especially so close to Christmas, Christmas being just a few days away, why read such a story when this is supposed to be a happy time of year, a joyful time of year? Here's the answer. As the angel said at Jesus' birth, Jesus' birth is supposed to be good news that brings great joy to all people. The reason why Jesus' birth is such good news that brings great joy is because there is so much bad news in this world, of which this story that we just read is one example that we could multiply 10,000 times 10,000, particularly over the last 100 years. The reason why Jesus' birth brings such joy to us is because the world is filled with such unbelievable sorrow. You see, the true message of Christmas is not just some cute little story about a baby being born that we we listen to and we, we sip our hot chocolate as we sit around a Christmas tree and just have warm, fuzzy feelings. The story of Jesus' birth comes into a world, a harsh reality. I mean, Herod goes and slaughters all the the babies around to try to kill Jesus. His whole birth is something that is birthed in violence. It's all about the horrific atrocities that often happen in this world. So what we must be able to do is to connect the birth of Jesus Christ to real life. And if we, if we can't do that, then of course people are going to say, I mean, what's the point of all this? It's just this baby being born. Lots of babies are born. What does that have to do with real life? What does that have to do with the fact that my life is falling apart? What does that have to do with all the atrocities and the war and the bloodshed and the violence that happens all around the world? It's no wonder many people don't care about Jesus if somehow they don't understand that the birth of this baby is so much more than a cute, nice story that Christians celebrate at Christmas time. So this morning, I want to show you that the true message of Christmas speaks right into the harshest realities of life. And this story, which is actually two chapters, I condensed it for the reading. It's from Judges 19 to 21. Just listen carefully. This, this story is not in the Bible because God approves of it. Far from it. God does not approve of anything that's going on here. You're supposed to read this story. You're supposed to be utterly appalled by it. I mean, that is a graphic story. It's a brutal story. Men using power in horrific ways. Abusing this poor woman, which results in her appalling death. And then the callousness of these men toward her death. I mean, the whole thing, it just defies comprehension. And yet again, could we not multiply a story like that 10,000 times over? This is the world we live in. This is the harsh realities of life. So then, here's what I'm trying to ponder on. Why is this story even in the Bible? (laughs) And what in the world does this have to do with the message of Christmas? Well, firstly, it's in the Bible because the Bible never, ever shies away from the harsh realities of life. It is so realistic. This is not some pious, holy book that's way up in heaven and dropped down for us and we can somehow live above it all. No, this book is right down dealing with the everyday nitty-gritty parts of life. And the book of Judges does that just about better than any other book in the Bible. 
The book of Judges is kind of one long downward spiral right to this story, which is its last story at the very bottom. It's the story of what happens when people individually and when a society forsakes God entirely and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's why it's in the Bible. How is this a Christmas story? Why would I want this read for us today? Well, the key to understanding this story, the key to interpreting it correctly, is seeing that it is bracketed on either end with essentially the exact same verse. And that bracket is a literary form to try to show you, make sure you interpret this whole story within the brackets. Those statements are what tell you how you should interpret it correctly. The one at the very end puts it so well. Here is how the book of Judges ends. This is how the story ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the end of the book of Judges. And that's the end of the story that we just had read for us. Judges was meant to show Israel, and it's meant to show us today that we simply cannot rule ourselves. <laughs> I don't think you even need a, 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 the book of Judges to tell you that. Can, can, do you rule your life perfectly or do you kind of make a mess of things sometimes? I mean, history is just one long lesson in this single fact that as human beings, we don't rule ourselves very well, we don't rule our societies very well, and we don't rule the planet very well. We have made a mess of things from the very beginning. So when everyone tries to be their own king, their own queen, what happens is there is conflict in society, things begin to disintegrate, and eventually horrific things like this take place. And of course, we've seen that over the last hundred years, the horrific events that happen when humanity and when society abandon God and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But here's the positive, and this is the connection to Christmas. The book of Judges ends with this exact verse. Because it is meant to cause the people of Israel and meant to cause us today to cry out from the depths of our being after reading a story like that, when you've got to the very bottom. I mean, does it, does it get much worse? I mean, sure, concentration camps, that's just that story times even more. But you're at the bottom when you're at a story like this and you're meant to cry out and say, oh, that we had a true king. Oh, that there was a king who had the power to actually stop this kind of brutality in the world. Oh, that there was a king who could somehow defend the weak. Oh, there was a king who would treat women the way that they're supposed to be treated instead of the brutal ways that men have often treated them throughout the history of the world. Oh, that there was a king who could subdue human hearts so human hearts wouldn't be so filled with wickedness as to commit deeds like the ones in this story. So the horror of Judges 19 to 21 is to make you live in reality. Don't go live in some pie-in-the-sky thing. Judges is saying, live in reality. And when you face it directly like Judges does, you're supposed to groan and say, is there any king who could possibly be good enough who could possibly be strong enough to actually make the wrongs right? You're supposed to cry out for such a king. And the good news of Christmas, that's where this is going, the good news of Christmas is God has sent such a king. That Jesus is that king. 
So I want to wrap up our series on Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and our king by now looking at Jesus as the king. We're going to leave this story behind now. This is kind of the, the launching pad to get us in the right frame of mind to show us why we need such a king. We're going to leave that story behind, and I want to trace this whole theme of kingship through the Bible, showing how Jesus is the king that we all desperately need. So let's look at three things today. First of all, what a king does. Secondly, why we need a king. And then finally, how Christmas reveals the ultimate king. So let's start here. This is the basic level. Pretty simple to begin with. This question, or not question, statement, what I want to talk about, what a king does. And I think it's pretty obvious we all know what a king does. Here's the answer. A king is a man who has the authority to rule and reign over a certain area and people. That's what a king is. That's what a king does. Now, biblically speaking, starting at the very beginning of the Bible story, God is our king. God is our king because he is our creator. He rules over us, and he rules over the planet that he created. But amazingly, God gave human beings the right to rule under him. We're kind of like his vice regents on earth, if you will. He gave human beings the call to rule the planet, to rule over society in ways that would honor him. But of course, when you get to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve turn away from God. They believe the lie that they can be their own gods, that they can define right and wrong for themselves, that they can make it up as they go along, that they're good enough and powerful enough and that they can do all of this. But of course, that brought disaster upon them and upon the world. So here's the big question then. <laughs> what happens when two monarchs want to rule the same kingdom? We know that there's lots of stories throughout history. What happens? Conflict, violence, bloodshed. What happens when billions of people want to be their own kings and their own queens? Lots of conflict. And so Genesis chapters 4 to 11 are much like the book of Judges. After Adam and Eve rebel against God and say, we want to do what is right in our own eyes, we want to be our own kings and queens, we don't want you to rule over us anymore, disaster ensues. And the result from Genesis 4 to chapter 11 is much like the book of Judges. It's one story after another of the way that human beings cannot rule their own hearts, the way wickedness comes out, the way that it destroys relationships, destroys societies. And it all is one downward spiral in Genesis 4 to 11 that shows that human beings fail to rule themselves, rule each other, rule society, or rule over the planet that God has placed us on. But in his grace, God begins to redeem this. And what he does is he sends kings to the nation of Israel. God says, I want to raise up kings who are going to show you how to rule. They will rule under me, and I will show you what good rule a, good, uh, a good king does. Well, of course, the most famous king there would be King David in the Old Testament, but even King David could not rule his own passions and own desires and caused a big mess of things. And then if you read on, David's sons, almost all of them, failed to rule in the way that God wanted for the good of humanity. And so throughout the Old Testament, then, what you get is this promise. God begins to make promises and says, one day I'm going to send a real king to you. A king that will be after my heart and a king that will be identified with me. And this king, God says, is going to do what all these other kings could not do. He's going to bring God's good reign and rule into the world. This good king is going to fix things. So that's the basic level here, what a king does. We're just kind of laying some groundwork here in order to tell the whole big story. 
But now we want to come to the second question, which is this, or a second statement is why do we need a king? Why do we need a king? And I think the answer for those of us living on the West Coast is we don't. <laughs> Who says we need a king? In fact, if you talk to sociologists uh, that have studied kind of West Coast culture, Canadian culture, every single one of them, all the studies show that people that live here on the West Coast are the most likely in Canada to be distrustful of any forms of authority. And there's whole historical reasons for this. But we are more anti-authority, distrustful of authority than anyone else in Canada here on the West Coast. Sociologists then link this also to the fact that because we're distrustful of authority here on the West Coast, we are also the most likely in all of Canada to say we have no religion because, of course, God is the ultimate authority. And here on the West Coast, the ultimate value is personal freedom, personal autonomy that no one else tells me what to believe or how I should live my life. And in many ways, of course, there's some good sides to this. Uh, human authorities can often abuse their power. And so, in one level, there should be a certain level of suspicion against any human authority because human authorities don't always do things right. Likewise, I mean, it's not like I'm wishing that we could have some, you know, absolute monarchy here so that we could have a king and telling us all what to do all the time. No, I, I love living in a free country. Uh, I would not trade living in Canada for living in any other nation in the world, basically in all of human history. We live in the best country, in the best place, in my opinion. I know I'm a little bit biased. But I wouldn't trade this for just about anything. And yet, despite all of our freedom, despite all of our wealth, despite all of our technology, despite the fact that we live in the wealthiest and most technologically advanced generation in the history of the world, we have not been able to fix ourselves. In fact, some of the problems get worse, some of them get fixed, but other problems come along. Let me show you, I don't have time to show you all the studies behind these, but let me show you some of the stats from numerous studies that show some of the problems we now face. Symptoms of depression and anxiety are on an 80-year upswing among young people and a 20-year upswing among adults. Each generation is experiencing depression at earlier ages. Since 1985, people are reporting lower levels of life satisfaction. Stress levels have, been, have risen over the past 30 years. Drug overdoses have hit an all-time high. By the way, these are not COVID stats. This is just general stats. Feelings of loneliness are up, and of course, COVID has made that far worse. 38% of Canadian marriages end in divorce. You might think, well, I thought that was 50. It's actually been going down. It's, this is 38%, but one of the biggest factors is people just aren't getting married as much as they used to either. And here's a big one. Wealthy countries and wealthy neighborhoods have higher suicide rates, higher than poor countries and poor neighborhoods. You'd think that all of our wealth and technology would solve problems, and yet that's an astounding statistic. Something about our modern era, something about the way that we're living is not creating life satisfaction, and we haven't even talked about all the things like murder rates or domestic abuse, sexual assault, or things like that. All of this should make us pause and ask ourselves a serious question. Why is it that despite all of our wealth, despite all of our technological advances, we have been unable to fix the human race. And this morning I'm asking that you would consider the Bible's answer to that question. And the Bible's answer is 
that we have turned away from God and we are unable to fix ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. No matter how wealthy or technologically advanced we get, we simply cannot do it. The Bible's answer, as we've already seen, is that humanity thought that we would do better without God, and so we turned our backs on our Creator, tried to define right and wrong for ourselves, but in the process then, we ourselves became slaves. Slaves to our own sin against God. We became slaves, the Bible says, to evil, dark, spiritual powers. And of course, the ultimate thing that we cannot beat is death itself. In short, we could say this, we fail to rule ourselves, society, or the world, and as a result, we're enslaved to sin, to dark powers, and to death. The Bible says what we need is a king who somehow has enough power to free us from these enemies, to set us free, and to restore us to what God originally created humanity to be in the first place. We need a king who is both good and powerful. We need a king who can fix the world. So now let's turn to the good news. All that was prep. What I want to do now is talk about how Christmas reveals the ultimate king. And what I've done so far is laid a bit of the beginning of the story for us. What I want to do now is kind of be the the super fast journey to the whole Bible story on this theme of kingship, of kingdom, of, of what God has done to send us a king who is meant to free us. And God promised he would send this king. This is the great promise of the Bible. He would send a king who would free us as his people crush his enemies, and set up his kingdom on the earth. So let's walk through this really fast, and I'm praying that as we do this, we would begin to just see the glory of what God has done for us, and this whole message of Christmas would come home to our hearts, maybe in a new way or in a fresh way. This promise of a future king was given right after Adam and Eve's sin. Right away, when God pronounced the curse on Satan, God said these words to the serpent, He said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, there's a male coming, someone from the woman's line. He is going to crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. In other words, serpent, you have enslaved the human race through deception, but a day is coming when I am going to bring a man, a man born of a woman, and this man is going to be so powerful that he's going to do battle with the the serpent himself, and he is going to destroy him by crushing his head, a picture of total and utter defeat, even though this man is going to be greatly wounded in the process. His heel will be struck by the serpent. So then the question becomes right away, okay, who is this man that could somehow be so powerful that he could fight against the serpent himself? Who could do such a thing? Well, when you continue in the story, God calls Abraham. He begins to say, all right, it's going to come through Abraham's line, a specific line. Abraham has children. One of those children is, uh, grandchildren actually, is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the nation of Israel. Now the promise gets super narrowed, and God says, Jacob, through your son Judah, I am going to raise up this man. This man is going to be a king. And here is what God said to Judah way back before Judah was, there's no signs of any kings. He said, the scepter, a sign of royalty, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he 
till he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Through your line, Judah, there is going to come a king. And this king is the one who's going to subdue all the nations. So then the story continues, and God narrows the promise even further when we get to King David, who's of the line of Judah. Now it's going to come through David's line. This promised king is going to be a son of David. But David and all his sons, if you read the long list of his sons, almost every single one of them fall terribly short of anything being remote to what we're talking about here. Making the world right, subduing powerful enemies. No, no king in David's line comes even close to this. But again, it's promised that a supreme king will come from Judah, from David to rule forever. And here's what Isaiah says of that. He says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So what happens then amongst the nation of Israel, amongst the Jewish people, is this great hope for this future king who will come. Daniel 2.45 speaks of this great hope. It says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. This kingdom is going to crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So here's where we're at the point in the story now. God promises to send his chosen one. The word is Messiah, the Christ, a chosen one. This Messiah is going to be a king. This king is going to come from the line of David. He'll be a son of David. And this king is going to make everything right. And so everywhere, all through the Old Testament, the people are looking for this king. When was God going to send him? Oh, God, bring this king. Bring this king who can make things right. And they're looking and they're looking, but hundreds of years pass, and there is no king. And then in Israel's history, there's only kings who clearly are not the king that is being promised. When will this promised king come? When will we get this hope in this world that is so messed up where stories like Judges 19 to 21 happen? When will this king come? And then when you flip the page of your Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the very first verse of the very first book of the Bible, of the New Testament, you get the answer. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 is one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. And yet you've probably just skipped over it because you know, if you know your Bible at all, what is Matthew chapter 1 all about? What is that? It's a genealogy. Right? It's, it's one of those long genealogies like the Bible has so-and-so, you know, begat so-and-so, and he had four kids, and he begat so-and-so, and usually that's the part where you just kind of skip, and you're like, when does the good stuff happen? This is what we usually do in our Bible reading. Don't do that! You're reading through the Old Testament, the longing for the king comes, and Matthew 1.1 is a genealogy, and here is how it begins. It says this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, who is he? The son of David. Matthew 1.1 is saying, it's an announcement, it is saying, the long-promised Messiah has come, the son of David that you've been looking for, he has come and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one, this, this one who's been born, this is the one you've been looking for, this is the long-promised king. 
And of course, this is the way the story continues on. Then the wise men come to see Jesus after his birth. And what do the wise men say? They say, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Then time goes along. Jesus is growing up. He's becoming a young man. And John the Baptist begins to go to prepare the way for Jesus the king. And John the Baptist goes out and he builds up more anticipation when he says these words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. This longed for kingdom that will make everything right. That kingdom, it's really near now. Get ready, he's saying to everybody. And then the big moment comes. In Mark 1.15, Jesus steps on the scene and he makes this announcement. The time, it's come. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this great, this glorious, this good news. Jesus was making the radical claim that in him, God's great kingdom where everything would be made right, that kingdom has now come into the world. Jesus is saying, I am the king of that kingdom and I have come. So now's the time to celebrate that good news. Now is the time to turn away from your sins and to join into this kingdom, to bow the knee to God and to join into his kingdom. Jesus is saying he is the king of the kingdom. He is the one who has come to free us from our enemies and to bring God's kingdom on the earth. So that's where we get to in Jesus' story. So then you ask, okay, why Christmas? Why did God become a man? Let's just hear some of the summary answers that have to do with this whole idea of kingship. Here's what Hebrews chapter 2 says. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, human beings, we have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death, what might he do? By his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. God becomes a man. Why? What's the reason here? That he might destroy our greatest enemy who is the devil, that he might destroy our other great enemy that is death. Jesus comes into the world to be the king who frees his people. That's what Hebrews 2 is saying. He does this not by military might, He does this by sacrificing himself on the cross where he saves us from our sins and triumphs over the devil. Here's how Colossians chapter 2 puts it. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And then listen to this language, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Oh, what a picture. That Jesus seems like he has been defeated on the cross, but through the cross, he finds a way for our sins to be forgiven. And since our sins are forgiven, what can the devil hold against us? The code, the written code that's against us has been forgiven. We have no more sins when we come to Christ and receive forgiveness. And so Satan has been disarmed. He has no more weapons with which to accuse. Our sins have been removed. And so he made a public spectacle of him, triumphing over him by the cross. And as he then ascends into glory after God raises him from the dead, he goes back to his father 
and we read this great passage in Daniel, which is the coronation of Jesus after he was raised from the dead, when he returns to the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, listen to how Daniel describes his coronation. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given now, because he's the resurrected Christ, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Listen. The universe is not a democracy. The universe is an absolute monarchy. And it is ruled by a good, a gracious, and a merciful king. Jesus is the one who as the resurrected and reigning king sits on the throne and has all cosmic authority. So that's where we're at in the story of Jesus' kingship, how he fulfills his role as the king. All the way from Genesis now, all the way up to his resurrection and ascension. But if you're a thinking person, if you've been tracking all of this, there's probably one big question that comes up in your mind right now. That big question is this. Okay, you said earlier this king was coming to make all the wrongs right, to defeat evil in the world, to make everything right. And yet, if Jesus is reigning and ruling right now, why is there still so much evil in the world? If Jesus is the king and it's an absolute monarchy, why do stories like Judges 19 to 21 keep on happening constantly within our modern world And it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. If he's reigning and he's the king, then where is this great kingdom? You've got to be able to answer that. It's what will give you hope. It's what will make sure that you understand. You don't, you know, doubt who Jesus is. It's critical to your hope and to getting through in this world. And the answer is simply this, that Jesus, when he came, said his kingdom is going to come in two stages. The first stage was at his first, what we call Advent, his first coming. He came the first time to, to do battle and to defeat our greatest enemies of sin, of Satan, and of death. And as you've already seen, he won those battles and caused their defeat. But they're not totally destroyed yet. Jesus said his kingdom would come in two stages. There's a second advent that we now look forward to, his second coming. And he says that his second coming is when he will come, not just to defeat his enemies, they've already been defeated, but to destroy them entirely. So he said his kingdom is coming in these two stages. And you and I right now live in this in-between time. In between the defeat of the enemies and their utter destruction. We live in this tension that they've been defeated, but they are not destroyed, and so they are allowed still to wreak havoc in the world. There's, of course, one illustration that I always use, basically every preacher does, is probably the best one to use to make sure that we understand this. And that is the difference in World War II between what we call D-Day and V-Day. D-Day, as you probably know, if you don't know your history, you need to learn about it. June 6, 1944, that's when the Allied troops 
storm the beaches of Normandy, a place like Omaha Beach and those kind of places. And really that is when the tide of the war turned. Up to that point, Hitler had taken almost all of Europe. It seemed like there was no, like he was just going to take everything. And that was the decisive battle. That after that battle, the tide of the war turned. But that's not V-Day. V stands for victory. V-E, victory in Europe day, happened almost a year later. So there was a gap between D-Day, June 6, 1944, and V-Day, almost a year later, when all hostilities ceased, uh, when, when the war was literally completely over. Now, imagine that you were a soldier somewhere in the middle of Europe, in the middle in between time. What would you be experiencing? Terrible battles. I mean, in fact, some of the fiercest fighting in World War II actually happened after D-Day and before V-Day. You, in your limited perspective, when you were somewhere in Europe in in these battles, you, you might have even thought at certain moments, we're done for. Like, this is over. This is really, really bad. You might have just lost all hope that there ever would be a victory because from your limited perspective, it would look like you were losing. But what you didn't know is the great battle of D-Day was the turning of the tide. That it set in motion all the events which eventually led to V-Day. And though you could not see it, the final war had essentially already been won, but it had been won back at D-Day. Now here's the point. You and I live between D-Day and V-Day. And from our limited perspective, it appears like Jesus is not reigning. It does not look like his kingdom has come. It looks at sometimes like the, the uh, Judges 19 to 21 story. It looks like that's what most of the world is like. But we sit between D-Day and V-Day. We still await V-Day. And friends, the great hope of V-Day is described well by Paul in Romans 16 and verse 11 when he says this, the God of peace will soon, he will soon crush Satan under your feet. The boot has already fallen. The boot is already on Satan's neck, but he has not yet crushed him. But the day will surely come when Christ will return and he will do exactly that. This is what the Bible promises. It says to us, look, He is coming with the clouds of heaven and every eye will see him. He has a name. His name is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and with all of his angels, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. On that day, it will be fully true that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And that's why on that day, every creature will gather around the throne and sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be glory, be praise, be honor, be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's the whole story. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole story of the way we turned against our creator to live what was right in our own eyes, messing up everything, but God sending a king who will make everything right again. So what then should we be doing with all of this? All the things we've heard today. Let me suggest two things in conclusion here. First of all, 
bow before your rightful king. Bow before your rightful king. You know, in the old days, uh, medieval England and such, they would send town criers, and the town crier would go on behalf of the king and go around to the, the towns and announce something from whatever the king would have to say. And of course, would begin with, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, right? That's the town crier. This is the message of the town crier to us now. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Your king has sent a special message to you. A great day of reckoning is coming. It will be a day of justice. It will be a day of vengeance. But your great king has now proclaimed right now that pardon is available to anyone who will bow the knee to him. To all you who have turned away from him, there is pardon, a debt Uh, The debt has been paid, a price has been paid, and he offers now a free pardon to anyone. No matter what you have done, he will pardon you. But you must bow the knee to your rightful king. You must swear allegiance to your rightful king, Jesus. And when you do, seeking his mercy, he will grant it. Seek his pardon, he will freely give it. And then rise as a subject of his king. Rise in the joy of his pardon and live for him. That's the message of Christmas for us, that God sent Jesus into this world to be our king, and one day he is returning, and we need to be prepared, and we prepare ourselves now. We bow the knee before King Jesus. Maybe you've done that already. We need to do it every day. But we bow the knee before him. Then there's a second thing I'd suggest we need to do in response to his kingship. It is this. Live for the glory of your king. Makes me think of the old story of Robin Hood, right? What a great story. The rightful king Richard has left for a while. And, and when, as he is gone, it's still his kingdom. He's still the king. But his evil brother, Prince John, takes over the kingdom, tries to reign. But he starts wrecking the whole place. Terrible laws get enacted. The society begins to disintegrate when King Richard is gone. And, and Prince John is just a terrible ruler. And so what happens, of course, is Robin Hood and his band of merry men rise up. And they are still swearing allegiance to the true king. They live by the true king's values. And they will not serve Prince John. What they do is go about trying to live by the values of King Richard. Today, the king's planet, God's planet, is in the hands of a false king. And although Satan has been defeated, he is permitted to cause great acts of evil in this world. But it is the church's job to announce this great king, to announce his kingdom, to tell everyone of the true king who rules over all things, and to call people to bow the knee to the rightful king. That's our job as the church. And then it's our job to live by the values of our king. Though he is not here visibly at this moment, we live by his values. We don't steal like Robin Hood did. But we sure give away our money generously to causes that are his kingdom like our Compassion Survival Program this Christmas. We live by his values in in all areas of our life. Though this world says you should do certain things with money, with sexuality, we live by his values. For we know that a day is coming when our king is going to return. And we want to be found faithful to him on that day. Also realize that in this time, That means that you may not always be treated well if you want to live a Christian life. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That should not surprise us at all. 
when we face hostility, I mean, you can talk about just about anything in our society. But if you start talking about Jesus too much, or especially what Jesus has to say about things like sexuality, you can be sure that you'll be ridiculed, you'll be scorned, and maybe worse. And yet, friends, we need to be patient. For the prince of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. They do not see who their true king actually is. So we must act with wisdom. We must live for our true king, knowing a day is coming when he will return. And on that day, he will publicly reveal who his true subjects are. He will publicly reward those who have lived for him. We must prepare ourselves for that great day. You never know when the king will suddenly return. So this is the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas begins in the real world of Judges 19 to 21 and the horrific story of that. It begins in that real world, not some pie in the sky thing, the real difficult world that we live in and the message is God has sent a king who through his great work is bringing a kingdom where stories like that will never ever be told again because they will not occur in his kingdom. And we got to make sure we're right with this king, living for him. So that's our series on the threefold office of Christ. I'm praying, as I said at the beginning of this series, we often at Christmas time remember who Jesus is. He's the God, man, God become a man. That's really important. But this year I want to focus more on what did he come to do? I want to go deep down into that. Okay, he became a man. We got that. What did he come to do? And I hope that through this series you've begun to see now a little bit more of what Jesus came to do. He came into this world to be our ultimate prophet. That is to teach us the truth so we'd understand reality correctly. Jesus is our ultimate priest who came into the world to cure us of our guilt by sacrificing himself. He's our ultimate priest. And Jesus is also our ultimate king who has freed us from our enemies and who will one day bring us into his kingdom of peace and joy. And so this Christmas season, I'm praying your heart would adore him. You would be able to say all praise to Jesus, the prophet who reveals. All praise to Jesus, the priest who reconciles. And today, all praise to Jesus, to the king who rules. Who is this baby? The baby that we're going to celebrate his birth? Who is this? This. This is Christ, our King. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to bow our knee to you. We say you are the King of this universe. Forgive us when we have not always lived for you. We have gone against your ways. We have done what is right in our own eyes. Forgive us for all the times we have done that. Have mercy on us. We're grateful that even as we address you as our king, we know you are a merciful and a gracious king. And when we ask you for pardon, you freely give it because you have given your life on the cross for us. Forgive us of our sins and help us to live for you. Thank you for the great hope that we have in Christmas that your birth means that there is a kingdom now come into this world, a kingdom that will one day bring all peace a kingdom where we're reconciled to our creator, a kingdom that we long for one day when you will make everything right. So we give you praise, Jesus, our King. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.